Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, coming to you from the lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Songhees, and the Esquimalt First Nations, commonly known as Victoria, B.C., Canada. I'm sharing an in-depth and very personal conversation today, so I won't spend too much time on preamble. My guest today is a trusted friend of mine, Oliver Shuket. Oliver is currently a psychology student at the University of Victoria. His training and expertise comes from various sources, college, university, private classes, etc. But he's also been working in clinics as a support person for over 10 years. He is a passionate reader and researcher of many topics, history, philosophy, political science, psychology, and sociology. But at the end of the day, I wanted to have him on the show because I have trusted him with my child as a skilled helper, providing emotional support for my son for a number of years. He's the parent of a 17-year-old trans boy with ADHD and autism autism diagnoses, and um, he also struggles with anxiety and depression, I wanted to talk to Oliver about this intersection of gender diversity and neurodivergence. Because it's not just my son, I literally don't know an LGBTQIA two-spirit plus youth. And I I know a lot of them. I don't know a single one who doesn't present with some form of neurodivergence as well, or at least some form of potentially diagnosable mood disorder like anxiety or depression. So apologies to all the queer folk right now who are like, duh, like <laughs> I get it, right? Look around, of course. But there's something else going on here, particularly when we think about autism, ADHD, um, the increasing uh, diagnoses. Of course, there could be sociological reasons for that, but but I know these kids, there is something else going on, and it's a massive gap in our understanding, I think, of sort of the granularity, the specifics of the confluence of these factors when it comes to gender diversity, queer youth, and neurodivergence. So since I don't hear this talked about nearly enough amongst neurotypicals and like in mainstream media, I thought, we should have a jam about it. I should have a conversation on the podcast and get into specifics. And the first person who came to my mind is someone that I consider to be part of my parenting team. So I hope you enjoy this conversation that I had with Oliver. So Oliver, what identities do you lead with? Hmm. What identities do I lead with? Uh, Okay. So I think where I'd like to start that is I was raised on the territory of the Lakota and the Cree. And I currently reside on the territory of the Wasanic. Uh, I myself am not a racialized person. I'm white. Uh, my heritage is that of French and possibly Slavic. Beyond those pieces, uh, I have lived experience of an intermittent physical disability. I have lived experiences of mental health difficulties. Uh, My identity is gender diverse, diverse, which is transmasculine. Yeah, I think that's the pile. I'm also, um, I'm currently a student, so I have that lived experience 
though I am a first-generation scholar. Mm. Mm. Ooh, I hear what you're saying with that one. I relate to that. <laughs> um, so, Oliver, what would you like to share with listeners just to help contextualize the nature of our relationship? Mm. Yeah. So, what feels like so long ago, um, I have known for quite some time that I have desired to be in a position of supporting people. And in my journey to do that, I uh, took a hypnotherapy certificate. This was quite some time ago. I want to say oh, possibly eight-ish years ago or so by now. And after completing this, this certificate, I got introduced to you, Carmen, and your practice, uh, I think through the mentorship aspect that you do. And so I took some mentorship with you. Um, also got lined up to do the G-Day uh, presentation, which was a wonderful ad adventure of an experience. Um, and then later on down the road, as I uh, went through my kind of like gender transition adventure, um, you connected me to other queer youth who are in need of supports. And that continues today, which I'm so excited about every time I'm like, oh, that kid doesn't have support. I, let me try to connect them with Oliver somehow. And sometimes I've had parents say, oh, is this going to be covered? I'm like, actually, yeah, <laughs> Oliver's a student right now, but I trust this person more than I would trust. Like, I mean, really, with my own child, with any anybody in town, I, it's like, no, this is who I would send um, mm -hmm. gender diverse youth to in the city that I live in regardless of credentials, quite honestly. So, um, yeah, I, you're, you're fantastically supportive, uh, to youth in this community and I super appreciate it. So this is, there's just a lot of ways in which, um, we have shared interests, but of course our lenses are very different and so this makes me so excited to talk to you about a current conundrum. This is like peer supervision, okay? Both of us are operating on the margins of sort of mental health fields, let's say, right now, <laughs> and like trying to figure stuff out because there's no teachers, um, really. So, uh, so here's what's happening in my practice. As I'm cross-pollinating ideas and research, and just to listeners know, once again, I am not a clinical counselor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm nothing like that, right? I came through hypnotherapy. Um, I did the year-long program to work with, in a complementary way, with people who have DSM diagnoses. That's where the clinical part of clinical hypnotherapy comes from, but I don't diagnose. Um, and my training has gone through trauma, trauma recovery, um, from a somatic perspective. Uh, my specialty though is attachment, um, attachment repatterning. So attachment theory, polyvagal theory, trance work, um, and working as a complementary provider to, to uh, folks who have different diagnoses. However, a fairly large percentage of my clientele are, are youth which is not something I seek out. It's just literally, it's just parents who are like, oh my God, please help my child. <laughs> and like, they won't, and my child won't go to, you know, see a psychologist or what have you. Um, and what do you know, along the way, my own child um, at uh, 14 years old, 
came out as um, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy. And so I have had to have a, a, a rapid re-education in ways that I thought I was being inclusive and um, encouraging of gender creativity and realizing like, oh, shit, I don't, I'm way out of my depths here. I, I need to catch up. Um, so I'm parenting a 17-year-old autistic trans boy with an ADHD diagnosis. And, you know, I've got some awareness of these diagnoses. I have, these are not um, unknown to me. It's not like I hadn't already done research. It's not like I didn't see certain signs, but I'll be honest, it's, it's actually pretty tough to tell the difference between somebody who has an avoidant attachment style or perhaps, you know, like a, that's a strategy that they're using and somebody who's masking autism. <laughs> like it actually looks pretty similar in a lot of ways. And honestly, I don't actually always see a lot of difference in the presentations between this is a person with autism and this is a person with, you know, some other kind of diagnosis. So Oh, I hear the kitty. Is that the kitty? Oh, I love That's it. the kitty. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, all this to say, it's pretty rare for me to work with queer youth who do not have some kind of anxiety or depression. And I find that most of the gender diverse youth that I work with are neurodivergent. Um, so I see this intersection here between autism ADHD, gender diversity, anxiety, depression. And I know that there's emergent research in this area, but I don't always trust it. I'm always kind of like, it's just, it's just another kind of capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist, patriarchal view on um, youth. And, and also beyond that, a lot of these things actually look a lot like developmental trauma, you know, like, so, so, what I see in my practice among gender diverse youth is a fairly predictable cluster of comorbidities involving, of course, anxiety and depression, which we look around at the world and think, ah, oppressive systems. Sure, of course, you're going to be depressed and anxious. But also, these comorbidities seem to include things like autism, ADHD. And then very frequently, especially as they get older, 15 to 18 years old, the onset of some form of nervous system dysregulation that becomes chronic. And it becomes chronic, you know, either a dysautonomia or an autoimmune disorder, like, for instance, POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or CFSME, commonly known as chronic uh, fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis. So, I mean... I'm always trying to tell them there's like no one thing. There's no one thing that's going to be diagnostic, but like clusters will be indicative. But now my question is indicative of what? Indicative of trauma? Indicative of like societal adverse experiences? What is it? So with your research that you're doing as a student, with your lived experience, with your experience even having a, a talk to a lot of youth, what what are you seeing? Do you think there's something in the emergent research that makes you think, ah, we're, we might be approaching a framework for supervisor, uh, service providers who could work in a more helpful way with 
this generational cohort we call Gen Z that seems to have this very interesting um, coalescence of issues. That's my long story. Take it away, Oliver. <laughs> okay. Um, so I will also preface with, so my, my um, nearly completed a bachelor's of psychology from the University of Victoria. Um, during the course of that degree, I have also ensured that I'm interdisciplinary. So I've taken multiple classes in specifically history of LGBT um, and also sociology. So just to really acknowledge where my kind of direction comes from. So um, your question has a lot of different pieces to it. Like I know what kind of like your end state question is, but there's a lot of layers to get to that point. And I would kind of like to go through some of those layers. So we are so like all of your listeners and such. So we're all kind of on the same page. Yeah, please do. <laughs> so kind of starting off um, the very first piece. So seeing differences between ADHD, uh, autism, anxiety, depression. And I just want to kind of voice for folks that in the world of mental health, it's very common for folks who have combination diagnoses um, to not be seen as those combination things, um, for them to kind of get lumped in together. It's kind of akin to, though obviously not the same, but akin to someone saying, I don't see color. Mm. By not seeing the distinctions between autism, ADHD, anxiety, depression, between these things, it's a bit of I don't see color. Mm. Because the emotional experience of someone who has anxiety is very different and their needs for safety are different than the experience of someone who has depression and what their emotional needs are. So, And a person before, can have both. So it sounds like it's an in-the-moment kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. So the thing is for and, – and this is where – and like you kind of mentioned, like, you know, we've got these systemic factors. And, of course, looking at the world, you're going to have all these <laughs> things. And it's like, yes, but it's a little bit tricky. So – um, just because something correlates doesn't necessarily mean it, it causes it, right? Mm -hmm. So a great example, one of my favorite ones that was used in school was um, ice cream sales are highly correlated with murder rates. What? <laughs> yes, they absolutely are. They're very, very highly correlated with each other. But obviously ice cream doesn't cause people to kill people, right? Like right. that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Right? So there's something else there. Well, what else could it be that's going to affect both of those things? It's temperature. On hot days, people buy more ice cream. And on hot days, people can't emotionally regulate themselves the same way. Their impulse is terrible and more murders happen. <laughs> so it's completely different temperature, but it's affecting both of these other things. <laughs> so when we talk about we're seeing, you know, multiple diagnoses occurring at the same time, it's not to say that they're causing one another or something like that. We, we don't know specifically why we have these cluster of things what ha that happens. So like we what, don't know what the temperature is. Exactly. Okay. We don't know. We, we don't even know if it is temperature. Like right. we don't know what that thing in the place of temperature is. Right. Yeah. Like we do know that in this society, someone who expresses autism someone who presents on that spectrum is going to experience more discrimination mm -hmm. the society is not set up for that and 
those repercussions, of course, are going to have detrimental long-term effects. So we know those things, but we don't have like the directionality of what's like making someone on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, And something I want to like make the distinction of between the two. So with autism and ADHD. So first off, one of the things with autism is so I'm very glad that we hear so much more about the autistic community nowadays. It's something that hasn't happened for many, 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 many years. And something else that's not always very apparent is the folks that we hear from in the community are the folks, they still have support needs, but they're not the same as the whole population. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that, and I specifically made sure I could pull, pull something that I could reference directly. So if we take the whole autistic community, the the whole kind of string of it, 70% of that community will have a co-occurring intellectual disability. 70%. And the the severity of that can vary. So 40% of them are going to have a severe to profound intellectual disability. So these are things like they may uh, not have the ability to speak, those kinds of things. And then about 30% are going to have a mild to moderate intellectual disability. Whereas the last percentage of like, you know, beyond that 70, they will present like normal levels of intelligence, standard, average, those kinds of things. The reason why I want to make note of that is that the autistic community hasn't had a voice for very long. And we still do not hear the voice of that other 70%. So when we're talking about these gender diverse youth, we're talking about the gender diverse youth who do have the ability to communicate these things, which isn't everybody. Mm -hmm. So I just really wanted to like kind of acknowledge that fact that even when we're having this conversation, this is centered around folks who have a very specific capacity already. That isn't actually everybody. Can I, can we just restate those numbers? Cause I might've misheard you, but 70% of the autistic community will have co-occurring intellectual disability of that 70%, 40%, it will be severe 30 percent it will be mild to moderate and so that leaves another 30 percent i guess that'll not actually visibly or in any way present with an intellectual disability correct okay okay thank you yes you're very welcome thank you for clarifying (laughs) um yeah and so now to kind of differentiate a little bit between autism and ADHD, because those two are, they're often co-occurring, but there <laughs> are folks who may just have one and not the other. <laughs> so uh, one of like the hallmarks of being on the spectrum, and I'm going to say it right off the bat, folks who are on the spectrum have empathy. Yes. Period. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know that's a thing that like, Ah, I, they have empathy. That's, there's no question about it. Mm-hmm. The thing that is different for them is something called theory of mind. Now, theory of mind, people have heard of it, but there's actually levels of theory of mind. So the first kind of level, and they're actually called orders, and the first order of theory of mind is the kind of sense of, I know what I am feeling, and I can have a sense of what someone else is feeling. That's kind of your, your first order theory of mind. Um, so it's being able to kind of predict the thoughts of another person. Now, your second order theory of mind 
refers to being able to understand what a third person would think about the second person's thoughts. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now there's a third layer on top of that. And that's being able to think about what that third person would think about this situation. So it becomes almost these like nested sets of thoughts. So the thing is for folks on the spectrum, getting to third order theory of mind, it's not super likely it's possible. They may do it. And that's usually a product of masking where they've been socialized to try to figure out, okay, what does this look like from the outside? So I can do the thing that social norms tell me to do. So like, it's not that they can't, it's just that it's, it is conscious effort to be able to try to engage in that. Mm-hmm. And that being said, there's neurotypical folks who also can't do it. <laughs> like, right. mm-hmm. That's like a really good being, point. Yeah. Like it's theory of mind is hard. Um, <laughs> and especially dependent on how society is socializing you. Like yeah. hands down folks who are socialized as female have a tendency to have a better sense of how their emotions are affecting other people then folks are socialized as male. Unfortunately, that's how we are currently in North America. Mm -hmm. I wish it wasn't the case. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So when we're talking autism, so we've got that piece, we've got a bit of this, like kind of the the social navigation piece. The other thing that's super, super prominent, and this is more so for like autistic folks lived experiences is their sensory system, how they interact with the world develops differently. And that can be and it can vary wildly so it can be that that person needs super 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 flavorful food to taste anything or they need it super super bland because the taste of anything is terrible or textures are terrible or temperature or sound so the way their sensory input is just kind of being processed processes a little bit differently now that happens for folks with adhd too but the nature of it is different and i actually specifically looked for a paper on it nice thank you <laughs> so if anyone can hear rustling that's because i'm going through a pile of papers to find this see this is the kind of researcher that you want there's like research done just to come on a podcast <laughs> this is great yeah um okay so part of the differences between this experience is that so if you think of holding something in your hand that you can't see and you're trying to figure out what that thing feels like, okay? Mm-hmm. So you're trying to discriminate the texture of something. Mm-hmm. The ability to discriminate that texture really well and identify it is easier for someone with ADHD than someone with autism. Hmm. So the differentiation of, of simulation sorry, of sensory inputs is the thing that is more difficult for someone with autism, where someone with ADHD, they can be like mixed or overlapping or more overwhelming, those kinds of things, but they do have more of an ability to kind of like discriminate and have these identities kind of be uh, separate or discrete from each other. And so I... I'm just thinking of my own experience and also of my sons. Of course, we have like, we're two different generations. We're totally two different people. But um, so he, with his autism and ADHD diagnosis, has different uh, expressions that have come on later in life of misophonia. So that idea of like hearing certain sounds, particularly around food and eating, is more acute. And of course, at first I was like, I had that too when I was 
younger. Uh, it you know you'll grow out of it maybe. But actually, what I've realized is mine was uh, I can't hear people brush their teeth or like mm. spitting or anything like that. It actually activates a very strong gag reflex in me, like very super strong. <laughs> and so you know g- going to you know if I'm ever in like a dormitory situation or like washrooms like that. And I can hear people, I can't go into that bathroom if somebody's brushing their teeth. So like, I actually can really relate to that uh, aspect of having certain sensitivities that are not just preferences. It creates a physiological cascade in my body that is so dysregulating. And yet uh, I still wouldn't look at, you know, if I, you know, I go through the diagnoses and things too. I'm not autistic. I'm not, I don't have ADHD. So one of the challenges is when you are a person who is like, ah, I have all these signs of um, autism, but actually now over, but, but not in this case, in this case, I'm something else, right? I'm actually mm. hyper oriented to uh, and, and hypersensitized to sensation uh, sound, etc. So it, it has made trying to narrow down a diagnosis pretty tricky. It's like if mm. you're just looking online at like, oh, only five out of these tens descriptors suit me. And this is this is why it's like, ah, oh, if only our healthcare could be more integrated and functional, so that we can see that like you can still be autistic and you can still have ADHD, even though you're not checking all the boxes. And sometimes what is supposed to be uh, a signature, you have the opposite, but you could still be autistic. Am I making sense? I'm just trying to like bring up how it's like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think I, kind of what I'm hearing is like the confusion that it is of trying to like navigate the DSM and like understand what it's trying to lay out. And I think that like, there's a lot of kind of, <laughs> so being an interdisciplinary disciplinary student, I've definitely heard a lot of like Folks do not like the DSM. I'm aware of that. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty, totally. pretty, pretty I'm not strange. saying I endorse it, but I do enjoy having yeah. some kind of framework that we can dialogue on. Yes. Let's just be and, clear. <laughs> and the thing for me about the DSM that doesn't always come across is one of its main purposes is to guide treatment and research. Mm. And so if we come about thinking about autism and ADHD from that standpoint, the treatment for ADHD is very different than the supports for autism, mm-hmm. even though these are both developmental disorders. Right. Right. And when we're talking about like differentiating these criteria, um, folks on the spectrum, and remember the spectrum is the full 100%, not just the 30% of folks we usually hear from, they also have other issues that often present things like um, the routine being more familiar or safe for them and the need for that Mm -hmm. um difficulties with like change and transitions those kinds of things Mm -hmm. um whereas when you have someone who's got adhd oh other piece i wanted to mention which uh, i didn't even realize until uh, a short time ago it's only been since dsm-5 that someone could have both adhd and autism that they could be diagnosed with the two so we're missing like generations of information on what the comorbidity of these two diagnoses actually look like, mm. which really sucks. Yeah. And that could be why we're like, oh, it seems to be more common in youth. It's like, yeah, we didn't used to diagnose them together before. Right. <laughs> so that kind of skews our data a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So 
one of the main like kind of pieces for ADHD that's like usually the biggest struggle for folks who have it is the executive dysfunction piece. Um, now, the executive functions are super important and almost anyone who's ever existed as a human has probably struggled with them at one point in time or another. They're the things that develop last in humans and they're real, they're real finicky sometimes. <laughs> um, so these are things like response inhibition. So like, you know, when you're holding your back, your tongue or your emotions, um, being able to like think and plan short things in your head, you know, like what's two plus two plus four. And if I multiply that by two and then da, 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 that's all your kind of working memory. Um, sustaining attention. That's the thing most folks think of when they think of ADHD <laughs> is sustained attention. Um, it's also task initiation. So the ability to go like, Hey, I want to do this thing. And then starting on doing the task, uh, planning and prioritizing. Uh, and that can also be like breaking tasks down is encompassed in there. Uh, time management. Uh, folks who have ADHD often talk about time blindness, so mm -hmm. they don't have a sense of when as time passes. Like obviously they can see, you know, day night, what have you, but they're focused on something. They're like, oh, two <laughs> hours just happened. <laughs> like, right. Um, flexibility is also a part of executive functioning, um, which some folks who have ADHD are hyper flexible <laughs> and some are more rigid and then stress tolerance. Mm. Now, as I went through this list, we could all probably think of things that we struggle with. It's pretty common. And the thing is for folks who have uh, struggles with mental health, many of these will, will be difficult. If someone's really, really anxious, their working memory is being overwhelmed by the things they're worrying about. Mm -hmm. But someone who's really anxious is often great at task initiation because they can't stop thinking of the thing that they need to do. Right. Right. <laughs> Where someone who's depressed, their motivation's shot. It's gone. Like someone who's depressed, depressed depression is hallmarked by learned helplessness. Mm -hmm. Hallmarked by they have tried and tried so many times without success that it's just like, I can't do it. Mm -hmm. I can't try. There's no point. Where's, yes. Mm -hmm. Where someone with ADHD, they have the motivation. But for the love of muffins, they cannot actually do it. Mm -hmm. They're like, no matter what, they try. And that's where the support becomes different. It's like, okay, how do we scaffold you so that the trying to do this thing actually mm -hmm. happens? Like, what's the barrier? Is the barrier um, is too overwhelming? Is the barrier something else? What mm -hmm. have you? Um, so executive functioning stuff can show up with folks around the spectrum as well. But it might not be in all areas. And... The other thing is that, so folks on the spectrum, their tendency is to be rigid. And I say overall tendency, right? Mm. So that means for any of these executive functioning pieces, the ones that can lean towards the rigid side, that's more so what's going to be happening. Mm. Whereas the folks who are more ADHD, it's going to lean a bit more towards the flexibility side mm. kind of thing. So that's why differentiating these two diagnoses, it's absolutely possible, but it takes a lot of like knee deep diving into how do each of these show up and how do they show up together? Mm -hmm. And the only reason why I know so much about these two things is because of my identity and I know the group that I want to work with and I know that this shows up in, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is kind of where we started this from. Yeah, right? exactly. Because it's like, <laughs> Why, wh I guess we don't know the why, but I'm very curious about um, what is the deal? It's just another way of saying why, but what is the deal with all these neurodivergent um, 
gender diverse kids. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's very intriguing and we don't fully know. There's a lot of interesting theories. Like there's some about where it's like, if someone doesn't have as much rigidity about social norms, maybe it's easier for them to be flexible about it. But the thing is, there's been gender diverse folks throughout history. There's been folks on the spectrum and folks with ADHD throughout history. Um, so we don't fully have a sense, you know, why or how these are expressing. Quick word from our sponsor, and we'll get right back to that conversation. So this episode is brought to you by Hide Tanning 101, a live online textiles training happening September 2nd to 30th, 2021. So hide tanning is the art of creating textile from animal hide. Have you ever thought of it that way? So this is something I've practiced with rabbit, sheep, and deer, and I studied with my dear friend and previous podcast guest, by the way, Mara Kerr. In Hide Tanning 101, you're going to learn the four fundamental types of natural hide tanning, plus the historical, cultural, and community resonance behind this ancient and embodied craft. So you're not just learning like the technical skill of hide tanning. It's also a journey of personal growth and discovery. I found this for myself anyway, as you explore how hide tanning techniques are really outgrowths of the ecosystem and the cultures of nearly every continent. I don't know if they have high tanning history on Antarctica, but everywhere else has a tradition. So with guidance on methodology and DIY systems, you'll be ready to dive into your own high tanning practice at your own pace and use High Tanning 101 as a resource for your own learning journey. High Tanning 101 is hosted by Mara, as I mentioned, along with my other dear friend that I just love so much, Adele Arsenault. Mara is a settler hide tanner, herbalist, and teacher, and Adele is a Cree Métis hide tanner, artist, and facilitator. September is the first and only live version of this training, so that means it comes with added question and answer sessions, but also some very sweet raffle prizes for those who sign up live. There's a special discount code for listeners of the Numinous podcast, so just use all caps code NUMINOUS at the checkout to get 10% off tuition. Sign up at fernandrow.com, F-E-R-N-A-N-D-R-O-E.com. One of the other points that I wanted to make, because um, uh, you had mentioned the the attachment piece. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> I've got all kinds of notes. That's why <laughs> <laughs> okay. So... Um, so the attachment piece is interesting. So besides uh, being a student, um, I do also for I want to say like four years now or something. Um, I've been doing part time work, also doing one on one supports with folks with with uh, di- disabilities. That's the other reason why I know so much about autism, um, because I've supported a lot of folks <laughs> in varying locations on the spectrum with autism. Um, and one of the most interesting. And kind of surreal, it's also a little bit heartbreaking, things that I have observed is how the person will be expressing their attachment and they will be expressing their care and they will be expressing those things, but they're not coming across in the same way that the other person would receive that. So I'll I'll, I'll use an example. So there's a person I supported who, um, very, very low verbal, could express verbally, wasn't necessarily their preference, um, 
And so I often communicated with body language and that's often how they communicated. And something that I didn't realize I had automatically picked up on is that when we would sit down to eat, this person would just scan across the room, just staring across the room. And if I didn't look, if I didn't catch their eye, they would just keep doing it back and forth and back and forth. And so I started when they would cross over me, just like really just, okay, making eye contact, connecting. And that was it. That was their way of expressing that they were looking to connect with me. And that was their way of connecting with me. Um, quite some time later, because I just became used to doing this. Okay, this is how this works. Quite some time later, I talked to the parent and they had no idea what that behavior was for. Mm. It never really registered for them that that's what that person was looking for because it was so different than their other kid. And so it's really tricky because, you know, when the original attachment research happened, like way back, I want to say like seven. Yes, maybe Bowlby in the 50s and Mary Main and yeah. them in the 70s. Yeah. 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 Um, we didn't, we don't know if any of those folks who were included, if they were on the spectrum or not. And so we don't fully know what their behaviors are going to exactly look like. And we already know that their social framework functions a little bit differently than a neurotypical person. So when I think of attachment, folks who are on the spectrum or have ADHD, they're going to have the same reasonably within the realms of like dependent on if other stuff has happened to them, they're going to have the same presenting attachment patterns as a neurotypical population where the difference shows up. So, um, and I kind of just want to hallmark the, something that you had mentioned was the avoidant attachment. Mm -hmm. Um, so one of the hallmarks of avoidant attachment is if that person tries to tune into actually, I'm going to back up. So on the attachment spectrum, you can have a uh, dismissive avoidant or fearful avoidant. Mm -hmm. So fearful avoidant is also referred to as being disorganized in the UK. Um, and dismissive avoidant is your kind of like uh, the most. Uh, I'm fine. I'm fine. They're the most disassociated, realistically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so for the dismissive avoidant, if this person tunes into their emotions, they will freak out. Right. For, for the sake of like stereotyping, mm -hmm. it's very hard and uncomfortable for them to tune into their emotions, mm -hmm. which is different than someone who is masking their emotions because it doesn't feel safe to express them. Right. So when you have someone with... Uh, on the spectrum, masking for them is hiding their stims, hiding their methods to self-soothe because they know that's not going to be perceived well mm -hmm. kind of thing, which is different than someone who has that the dismissive attachment. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason why I mentioned disorganized attachment. So disorganized attachment in your like quote unquote standard normal population um, is maybe one percent it's pretty uncommon for folks to have disorganized attachment relatively speaking amongst a large chunk of the population when we look at a clinical population what i mean by that is folks who are more likely to be connected to medical services and inpatient services the rate of specifically disorganized attachment goes up 
and that range starts hitting anywhere between like 40 to 50%, it's going to vary. Folks who are gender diverse, their attachment styles are most often disorganized and anxious avoidant. So what you're seeing of a lot of gender diverse folks, a lot of gender diverse folks having attachment difficulties, that is a trend. Absolutely. And it's a very unfortunate trend. And there's not a lot of research on it. I would theorize as to why we live in a society that doesn't support gender diversity very well. And so these folks end up not relating well to the people around them. And also their instances of like childhood aces and all kinds of shit is real high. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even mm -hmm. if you compare, if you just compare, um, gender diverse to the rest of the LGBT community, their rates are still higher than the rest of the community. What do you, okay. So I've got a couple of things. Um, yeah. Gender diverse versus the rest of the LGBT community. I want to talk about that in a second. Um, mm -hmm. Cause that's a, I, I don't want to call it a binary, but that that's a juxtaposition I haven't heard of. And so I want to talk about that. But also just, I don't want to say this in the outro because I want to make sure you're on the call to say it. Um, my experience with disorganized attachment for folks who are new to attachment, I just want to say, um, yeah, the language shifts quite a bit between whether you're working with children or adults and also between whether yeah, you're in the UK or America, North America. So it can be very confusing. And I tend to use what we tend to use with kids is like there's anxious because it presents kind of how it sounds, right? It's like it's very preoccupied with relational stuff and avoidant. But as you said, within avoidant, um, there's a, a, a range. Within both, there's a range. And when I'm talking about disorganized, because folks have heard me talk about it on different um, podcasts, specifically with Alexandra Stain around totalitarian regimes and cults, um, also with Matthew Remsky and also in the episode with uh, Patty Elledge, when we're talking about disorganized attachment there, it's that somebody's had a life blip, something's happened that has disoriented them, disorganized their, their sense of stability and relationship. And so it presents as very kind of come here, go away. It's a very confusing relational field to be in because on the one hand, they like want to be with you. But on the other hand, they're like, fuck you, I don't trust you. So however, what you're describing, Oliver, is that very few people have disorganized attachment as their default attachment, whereas many people fall into blips of disorganized attachment and sometimes get carried into vulnerable situations because of that. Um, that's, that's a thing that I just want to put out there is like the lens that I've been, that I've learned through, um, through Diane Poole Heller uh, and, and others um, just to make a distinction because they might be confused by things that I've said before um, on the podcast. Mm. So when you're saying that one person, because I would say, Particularly since when the field is very destabilizing, more people are likely to fall into a period of disorganized attachment where on the one hand, they, they want closeness. On the other hand, it's not consistent. They don't want it. Um, and in youth especially who have um, mental health challenges and comorbidities, the, the chance of that being a disorganized attachment field is extremely high. There's no way for it to not be. They're just, there's just going to be 
kind of uh, crises and things that happen that create a lot of turmoil in the field. And so I'm kind of wanting to share that with parents so that they're not like, oh my God, my child has this very rare kind of attachment style that's never going to change. You know, attachment styles are actually strategies. They change depending on the context. They change depending on your relationship with the person. They're not fixed. They're not traits. You know, they're just like states and strategies that we use to survive to get through things. So I just want people to like not worry too much about that. Um, and then yeah. before we go to the gender uh, diverse versus LGBT, I, I just want to give you a chance to also weigh in on either what you mean or just like some distinguishing yeah. um, differences in yeah. how we talk about it. Yeah, so um, I think what uh, absolutely like a uh, fluidity of attachment and how that strategy is going to vary and change based off of circumstances is very, very important. And um, so in and like kind of exemplifying that the rate of disorganized attachment is higher in gender diverse communities, the kind of the piece there is that for the for that community as a whole, um, the likelihood of them having someone in their life that feels predictable and safe, reliable, that they can feel comfortable around just being themselves is much less common. Mm -hmm. And it really only takes one person for someone to have like a sense of a secure attachment, at least with one person. Mm -hmm. And just in gender diverse populations, that's rarer to happen. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of really the piece there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, if you're being that person for your child, if you're you're the person that they're safe and secure and doing great with, sweet, cool, <laughs> like yes, we need more of that. Um, but yeah, and and also like it's uh, they're a pretty high risk population, which mm -hmm. sucks. Like they got a high risk of homelessness. Mm -hmm. so many extra syllables in that. <laughs> <laughs> high risk of homelessness um and all kinds of things so and a lot of those pieces don't make for stable attachment strategies because yeah. they don't get to feel that there's people that they can trust or go to for help yeah this might be a good time to shout out the uh zine by leah joe and fizz percal called queer attachment an anti-oppression toolkit for relational healing uh and it's um yeah, specifically for um, basically what they've done is like a book report of all the literature <laughs> and and put it through the lens of of uh, I guess what they would call queerness and um, it's like a little Cole's notes for attachment styles for for queer folk and it's available cool. online and I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, so I, I'll give you an opportunity to say anything else around that and then my follow up would be when you say gender diverse versus LGBT. What, what, what are, what are, what's the difference between these groups here? Um, so the reason why I'm making that distinction is that the, the research involving like the LGBT community as a whole has often been done in such a way where it lumps everybody together. Mm. And so what I mean by that is like, let's say you're doing a study on relationships and the way the researchers would organize the data when they're analyzing it is they would pretty much go heterosexuals versus everybody else. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then they would compare it. But the thing is everybody else 
trans, lesbians, gays, bisexual, pansexual, queer, ace, trans, two-spirit, like that's yeah. everybody else is the whole kit and caboodle. Right. The thing is, in that group of everybody else, they're different. There right. are differences. Um, and as we've begun to finally start differentiating, we've seen different things like uh, the relationship strategies that are used between gays and lesbians are different. Um, the co-occurrence of discrimination experiences are different for pansexuals and bisexuals versus gays and lesbians. So we're starting to see those differences within the community. And it's still also only been fairly recent that we've even bothered to separate trans out of that group. Mm. Um, which is kind of annoying because it's like <laughs> there's so much that we don't have data on um but yeah so when i say gender diverse and i kind of like hop in between saying gender diverse or transgender and gender diverse is kind of um a relatively more recent term that tries to be more inclusive of a larger range whereas tr transgender is still the term that's often used in research <laughs> so and it depends on the field. Like it's one of those things where if I go into my psych classes, some sections of psychology, let's say cognitive psych, you'll be lucky if they do something on transgender people. Mm. And then if you go over into social psych, then they might include pansexual and bisexual and like have <laughs> all of these things. So like different chunks of the field are at different locations with terms. Mm. Um, so I often hop back and forth between the term I'm using because I'll be like remembering a specific paper and like the okay. term in that paper was trans or the term in this thing was gender diverse. So it'll be a weird thing that I hop in back and forth in between. So my apologies if that's really No, confusing. this is really <laughs> great. I appreciate the distinction and, and where it's situated in kind of the um, timeline of uh, gender diversity research, you know, and sociological research and attachment research and all that. It, it, this is really good. This is really good. So um, given what we've talked about so far, what do you see as maybe most promising practices uh, as we move forward as practitioners um, who are supporting uh, queer and gender diverse youth with these comorbidities specifically yeah um you know and there's a few different pieces there i think one of the things is that for a lot of these folks um they've gotten so habituated to like hiding the things that they struggle with mm. and so um the idea of being trans enough or autistic enough or ADHD enough. Like those are very hard things that they often struggle with. Um, and then there can also be so much guilt and shame about having the things that they struggle with to begin with. Um, so I think like a lot of what I'm supporting folks comes down so much to just like being willing to listen and really validating that person's experience. And I'll, I'll give an example. So there's years and years ago, when I was seeking supports for myself, um, a person I went to who uh, is a trained psychologist um, had pinned me uh, for being borderline, having borderline personality disorder. And to preface, I don't. Um, but that person, for most people, put them in that box. They just, they, they were borderline. 
what they didn't have the capacity to differentiate was complex PTSD mm-hmm. and borderline personality disorder, which mm-hmm. are different, yeah. but they can both present with emotional regulation issues, which is the hallmark of borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. One of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's also so, just say many practitioners don't even believe that BPD actually exists. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, like, it's like there's, it's like, it could, it's, we're back to the, what's the context? Could it be trauma? Is it, is it that? Is it something else? Right. So, um, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and like, even the idea of like, is it trauma? Like, does it matter? Right. What I mean, what I mean by that, cause I know that could be a very like, what do you mean? Does it matter? <laughs> no. What I mean by that is how I'm going to support someone who has borderline personality disorder, the types of skills and things I'm going to work with, with that person versus someone who has complex PTSD are different. Because someone who has complex PTSD, there's a sense of possibility of closure. Mm. There's, this, there, there's different strategies that person needs to feel safe in the world versus someone who has borderline. The emotional regulation differences between those two groups are different. You could also have both. Like, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and those needs are going to be different. Um, but anyways, so the that particular psychologist their ability to listen to what exactly it was that i was saying and understand it in the lens of trauma versus just my default kind of quote unquote default way of going through the world wasn't available they did not have that skill and or capacity so for me being able to support folks is really being able to try to understand what it is that they're struggling with as like so for folks with executive functioning someone who has adhd externally often looks like they're depressed especially if they don't if they're not getting supports for their adhd Mm. and one of the big differences is they will still have motivation but they can't do anything about it Mm. (laughs) and eventually they can also have depression on their adhd but that will still look different. Um, if I think of like, even in the training that I'm taking now, I had to do like a transcription of a session and like, like go over like, you know, word by word, what I was doing. And I've been supporting folks one way or another for like 10 years. And even in that session, I went like, Oh crud. I did not catch that. They gave me these specific emotions. Mm. I didn't pick up on them, Mm. you know? And like, I do the best I can to be attentive and we can't always. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's like a really, really big piece. Like a lot of what I do is just going like, wow, it sounds like when you're struggling with this piece, it feels like you're up against a wall and you have no options. And that can just be the huge relief. Mm -hmm. And it's hard in the context of like, yes, we live in a society that has a lot of problems (laughs) and they're kind of just getting worse. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, is that what that person really needs to hear in that moment? Like, yes, the struggle for dealing with society is a lot, but if getting out of bed is so hard, then getting to be able to deal with society isn't going to really be able to happen. Mm. And in this moment, what this person needs is strategies to get out of bed. Mm. And I say that because there's a lot of energy and emphasis on like yeah like like let's fix the system let's do the thing and if we do that we'll have less problems it's like yes 
in the future. <laughs> but how can we get you out of bed right now? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And being able to really like keep those pieces like present and in perspective. Um, because even with these folks, when I when I'm supporting them, it's very easy. And if anyone has any amount of anxiety, it's super easy to pop into the future mm-hmm. or pop into the past and not get into like, oh, but what I need in this moment is to actually feel seen, mm-hmm. which is very different. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, I see you're making notes, so I'm going to like... I, yeah, well, <laughs> it, it's, it's making me think about, well, first of all, um, so you're talking about listening and validating. And uh, I, d- I kind of want to address parents specifically, like, really, it is about attunement. And that um, your child could have multiple diagnoses. They could have um, a social context that's really challenging. They, you know, the world is as it is. And ultimately, like when you said, does it matter? It's like, yeah, ultimately, it's, it's like there's this funnel. And we're going to funnel down eventually to this person's nervous system. And not to be all like, you know, um, pointy headed about it, but like ultimately like, yeah, queer youth are going to have the same attachment needs, but depending on their um, challenges, like, yeah, maybe kind eyes isn't going to work as much as it will with somebody else, but they still need that like fragment of a second of contact, right? To know that you're there and you were looking back at them. And so, you know, we're going to try to attune. And your child may not um, need what is natural for you to offer, but these are skills we can learn. And ultimately, the blessing and the curse is we actually don't have that many skills we have to learn. It's like basic attunement is going to be kind eyes, like, you know, an emotionally resonant voice that can meet and match someone, you know, safe touch if they want it. So understanding about consent and like tracking that um, shared rhythms, which could be routine, which could be turn-taking in conversation or not. It could be uh, body language, as you said, and like ingestion behaviors, which even if they have pretty severe food stuff, they got to eat and drink and they need to have safety and non-judgment around that. So like essentially it's all going to funnel down no matter what the diagnoses are. And like you said, like you're you're not always going to get it right. And thank goodness for the good enough mother studies, right? Of what, I can't remember what his name was, but anyway, that like Essentially, it's not 100% attunement to your person that creates secure attachment. It's like, oh, I've misattuned, but I've come back or I've come into repair. So it's the it's the losing and refinding, losing and refinding. And that as long as we're there to repair and we're like, we're tracking even when we're fucking up, then the studies show that you only need to be good enough. You only need to be attuned like somewhere between 25 and 32% of the time and there to repair when you fuck up in order to tip that relationship into secure attachment. So I am kind of speaking specifically to fellow parents of gender diverse youth who have multiple, you know, diagnoses and are like, I'm bringing the kind eyes and I'm trying to do all this like, you know, attunement stuff and work with their nervous system because I know they need to know I'm there. And it's not landing. But you know what? Like, you can kind of shit the bed a bunch of the time as long as you're there to repair and you're like, you know, you and they see behavior change and they see growth. So I, I just want to, like, encourage parents that if you if you also have, like, we God, we've gone through so many psychologists and family therapists and, you know, like, and, like, ultimately it's going to be about rapport and attunement. 
And so this is why I say I send I send kids to you and um, because you're really good at attuning. So I, I just wanted to throw that out there that like most promising practices are educating ourselves as adults about what our attachment style is, how our knowing what our nervous system is doing and how our mirror neurons and like how and learning how to track ourselves and others. And then we can be with whatever they tell us without freaking out and trying to fix it all the time. And also not dismissing it as like, well, that's just the world. And I know I, I, I walk a fine line with that a lot. Um, yeah. Um, and so like, I want to throw it to you and also ask what you think when you become a certified practitioner, like what, what you're going to be What's going to be in your bag of tricks when you when you're working with kids? Um, so just before I hop on that, I want to two specific things about um, I guess like attachment strategies, quote unquote. Yeah. For folks on the spectrum and folks with ADHD, um, body doubling oh, is a yeah. thing that is a great way of showing attachment and connection and for folks who may or may not know what that is um and i do not know what the technical term is like this term has literally come out of the community uh, body doubling which is that two folks are sitting in the same space doing something but they're barely if at all interacting with each other so this is their uh, in in old shows it's like two folks sitting on different couches, both reading a book at the same time. That's body doubling. And for folks on the spectrum or with ADHD, that is connection. That can look like connection for them. It can be one person playing a video game and the other person reading a book. It can be two people working on a paper in the same space. And that is a form of showing connection and value to the other person that's there. Mm -hmm. So It's kind of a form of shared rhythm, right? It's like, here we are, we're just breathing. (laughs) <laughs> and like I can be here and regulate myself knowing that you're there I'm not auto regulating by being like oh you, you breathing is like taking me you know I need to go into my own world to self-prevender all my emotional needs right now it's like no you're sitting there you're doing your thing I'm doing my thing and the connection is here or we're trying to accomplish a task that's where I've heard about body doubling is like we have different tasks we've got to do that we're having a hard time <laughs> getting that yeah. that motivation or whatever. Um, yeah. Can I tell you a quick story about body doubling? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I'm aware of this concept and um, I have asked my son if he would like ever help with that. Of course, he's always like, no, no, no. And I had um, asked my son to, to do the illustrations for my forthcoming cookbook because this is totally his wheelhouse, right? He's a total artist. And um you know, if I say, hey, could you draw a sheep? That would take him like 15 minutes. Whereas me trying to learn how to digitize a photo, like it, it's not my wheelhouse to take forever. And at first he said no. And I was like, I receive your no. Okay. I'll just like build in time. But then a few things came up and I had about two months out before my deadline and said, look, I know you've said no. And now though, I'm coming to you with a, with a request that I can't receive a no for. And I know this is going to freak you out. So I'm going to like try to support you however you can, but I am like really up the creek. I need your help. Will you do this for me? As like, I never ask you for any kind of like thing. I do so much. I need you to do this. Yes, this is mom guilt. Yes, this is maximum pressure for you. And he was like, okay, fine. So he said yes. 
and then immediately committed himself to this art thing, this art trade thing on Instagram, where he had to do like 30 commissions for people in 30 days. And this is, okay, so now it's getting down on the wire. Now we've got six weeks. But I was like, okay, that's cool. Like, you know, so of course that sends his whole ADHD of like, I have to hyper-focus on this and I'm like super stressed out about it. And I was like, that's fine because we've already done the math. We know this is going to be maybe six hours of work for you to work on my thing. So you'll get through your four weeks of stress. That's fine. You love it. And then you'll have some recovery time. You'll come back to me. So then I notice in those two weeks, he's plunging into depression. And I'm like, hey, I I know you're feeling a lot of pressure over these photos, these pictures. Can I, can we, could I sit with you while you do it? Do you want me to be beside you? Do it? No, no, no. Don't help me. It's fine. It'll be fine. I'm just tired. Okay. It's 36 hours till my deadline. Yeah. Who texts me at 1230 AM? It's like almost 1 AM. I can't. I'm so depressed. I can't. Too much pressure. I'm like so upset. I'm feeling. I've never. Thank goodness he was in a different house. He was at his dad's house because I've never felt such a strong. Are you fucking kidding me? In my, you know, I'm working towards the biggest deadline of my life. I wanted to, yeah, I was just, I was losing it inside. And uh, I managed to say like, wow, naturally, I'm super angry and upset. I'm going to probably hold this for a bit. But here's what's going to happen. I'm going to get through my big day tomorrow editing photos. Then the next day, you're going to come over here. And you're going to sit at the kitchen table with me. With You're going to bring your iPad. And you're going to teach me how to use this program. And you're going to champion me while I figure out how to do this thing I've never done totally outside of my wheelhouse. And you are going to cheer me on while you watch me draw these 12 pictures of farm animals. And you're going to show up oh at a good time. You're going to do it. Yeah. And he was like, okay, that's great. So he came over and that is what we did. I was like, you're going to watch me at the 11th hour do a really hard thing while I'm freaking out. Do it anyway. And you're going to just like cheer me on the whole time. And what ended up happening, of course, was I would like start a photo and then I'd be like, hmm, how would you make this better? And he'd be like, okay, let me look at it. And then he would make it, you know, 50% better, 100% better in a few seconds. Mm. And um, we had six hours of work to do. But four hours in, he was like, you know, it's kind of like he'd been sitting at the table the whole time. Was never seen him like outside of his room for this long in like months. But he sat there, he did it. And after about four hours, he was like fading. And he was like, you know, I could just do these last six at night. And I looked him in the eye and said, I'm sorry, I can't trust you with that. And that was an emotional moment. Yeah, he was like, okay, okay. And I was like, but I really appreciate you being here. And he was like, okay, great. And so we did two more hours and um, it wasn't so bad. He was like in a good mood. He didn't crash out the next day. He, you know, he Mm -hmm. was like, I'm kind of tired, but like. I'm okay. Um, And I didn't bring it up with them, but I was like, I know that if we had done the body doubling, (laughs) but the thing is, (laughs) I get it. He cares a lot. He doesn't want to disappoint his mom. It was not the skill. It was, he could say all the different reasons why this Mm. was going to overwhelm his system, but ultimately it's going to be like an emotional relational thing. And I, I did know that this was going to be a problem and, I should have given him a deadline that was, you know, a week before my actual deadline instead of two days. Um, Mm. My bad. (laughs) Teachable moment for mom. 
But also I was like, okay, so sometimes I will have to be like, no, we're body doubling now because it's your math final or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to sit here. <laughs> I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do my thing. You're going to do your thing. Because there was so much reticence beforehand that like, it really, things had to be breaking in order for him to be like, okay, yes, I'll do this. He had to know that he was like super pissing off his mom. But then he did it and it was good. It was fine. But it would be great to, um, we still have to talk. We have to have a debrief over (laughs) what what that happened. But, But I was impressed and very amazed at how well he was like, yes, I will do this for you and showed up and there was like no sulkiness, but, um, and then he just Mm -hmm. did it and it was fine. He didn't freak out. Like he's in his wheelhouse doing the art. So when I'm like, here, help me with this Amanita mushroom, he's like, no problem. And, and you know, I think, I think it went well, but I could see how body doubling could be a much more enjoyable experience if it hadn't been right before the biggest work of my entire life was due. Yeah. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, totally. But yeah. Yeah. Body doubling can be really effective. And it sounds like, like part of the piece piece is about like um, scaffolding away where it's part of a regular routine or something where, where like, like it's, it doesn't have the extra pressure. It's, it's novel, but not so novel that it's overwhelming. And like, that's, that's the tricky fine line when you've got both autism and ADHD, right? Like there needs to be a certain amount of novelty because that's the ADHD needs a little bit of newness, but not so much novelty that it causes shutdown. And that's like kind of your, your, this is uh, where the attunement is, right? I'm like, look, and even though I named it and was like, I know this is going to be a problem, but we have eight weeks to figure this out. I just, what do you know? That didn't, that didn't help. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, and it's tricky because, like, dependent on the person and where they're at, the idea of, of problem, it's like, it's in like, oh, is it, it am, am I the problem? Mm. Am I like, like, what? And like, and for folks on the spectrum, that piece goes like so many different places. Mm. And then for folks with ADHD, so one of the things about ADHD regarding social pieces, folks with ADHD often can tell that they've messed up the social cue right but don't know how to but don't know how to fix it right where someone with on the spectrum is less likely to even notice the social cue to begin with so some with a lot of like lived experience of ADHD is like oh how have I messed this up already yeah the word problem am I the problem I'm always probably right. like, <laughs> yes. and now the mind hour. is so flexible and <laughs> it can take yeah, us a lot just, of places yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and like on the idea of that kind of like body doubling almost one of the folks I supported he used to have troubles with eating like just they had a very complicated relationship with food um which is really really unfortunate but one of the strategies that I would use is I would always have snacks on me. And if I started eating, they would. Oh. But if I initiated it, it wasn't going to happen. If I asked them if they were hungry, anything, absolutely not. But if I started eating, then they would be like, oh, I think I want to go get something. Like it, that's, they just, they needed something else to kind of cue them into it. Mm-hmm. But there's no amount of like tuning into your body or any of that stuff that was really going to land with this particular person. And they're so different. Like mm-hmm. that person otherwise seems very 
functional in many ways, but eating, pff, nope, not happening. That is very good tracking and very creative, right? Like that that's you tracking human nature. Like, ah, I'm noticing this pattern. And like, what if I try this to interrupt that pattern? And like, ah, look, mirror neurons. Okay, this is a friend, you know? So that's a very useful um yeah, that's a very useful story, I think, for a lot of parents that it's about tracking and there's no kind of like textbook solution. It's you have to observe and experiment a little bit. I sidetracked mm. you with my story, though. Were there other things you wanted to share about what you're going to emphasize as practitioner? <laughs> yeah, thank you for, for bringing me back to that spot. Um, I think like the one of the big pieces for me is really education, um, improving the quality of education for practitioners, because right now it's really, really, really limited. Um, there isn't, even in the process of my degree, I did not get exposed to very much information on gender diverse populations. I got exposed to more of it in the sociology department than I did in the psych department, <laughs> like hands down, I did, um, which was very frustrating. Anyways, um, so a lot of it is about just like improving the quality of education for practitioners because there's a lot of lack of information or misinformation that's out there um, about these groups of people. And then otherwise, um, so much of support, I'm going to backtrack a bit, in the work that I do, like the part-time work that I mentioned previously, that was when I really got introduced to the idea of person-centered care, hmm. um, which is something that's like much more common now than it used to be. And it's something that I've heard about, talked about in psych, but not nearly as often. Um, but one hallmark to me of person-centered care is the idea that the person themselves, whoever you're trying to support, knows the answer to what's happening. And it's finding a way to scaffold them and support them to the point that they feel safe getting to that answer or expressing it. Mm. And so for me, it would be about getting more practitioners comfortable with like the awkward silence or the not knowing <laughs> or the like this person is soup, like really, really distressed. And I'm just going to sit here with them and we're going to figure this out mm. because a lot of what I've witnessed um, in the supports that I do or in, hearing like other practitioners talking has been a lot of like problem solving or like trying to think of all these different solutions when it's like the person who has has these things they're experiencing knows where their limitations are mm -hmm. but they often don't have the space to to do the thing that's not like normalized for them like um an example of this so i had a person who i was working with who they had such a hard time not using their phone in bed they, they, they absolutely knew that if they went to bed and if they did a meditation while they were in bed, that was, that was their dream. Like they loved it. They were so motivated to do this, to do this. And they just had, they just did not know why they could not get off their phone. And they were so frustrated, like absolutely beating themselves up about it left, right, and center. And so I started talking to them like, okay, so walk me through this. Um, what, why do you use your phone in bed? Okay. Well, it's cause I want to like check these things right before I go to bed okay, is there anywhere else that's comfortable enough to do that? Oh yeah, actually there, there is another chair in my room. Okay. Okay. So what would happen if you're trying to use that chair and then like you transitioned to your bed, like what's the next possible block? Oh, well, I want to be able to plug it in to charge it. And the only place that I can actually plug it in is actually beside my bed. So 
my phone, the phone ends up coming over to my bed because I actually need to be able to plug it in over there. Ah, <laughs> so if we can find another place to plug in your phone, you won't use it in bed. Lo and behold, we found another place to plug in their phone. Problem was gone. Hmm. What looked like an inability to get off the phone had nothing to really do with the phone, but just the order of operations of what was happening. Mm. But the other folks who had like worked with this person was just like, okay, well, we'll try like setting a timer and doing all these other <laughs> things. It's like, and that had nothing to do with what the issue was, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it can be really granular and awkward of like, okay, like what is, what is the actual block here? Mm. Um, one of the terms in the ADHD community is like, what is the wall of awful? Mm. What is the, the thing you have to get through to be able to do the thing? And how do we make the wall of awful smaller to be able to do it? Mm. Um, so for me in the future, it's about being more open to like unique or different strategies, really being able to be comfortable with like what this person is bringing up and finding a way to scaffold around it. Uh, better education on like gender diversity and what folks who have that lived experience like need, what they're looking for, for support and really being able to differentiate between different diagnoses because, you know, someone who has anxiety has very different needs than someone who is on the spectrum and has ADHD. But and if they have all three of them, we have to track have moment th- to moment what's happening in this moment that is the impediment, right? And how are those playing yeah. together? Yeah, I totally, totally agree. Yeah. What What do you hope to see, Oliver, in, in the future? What do you want to see more of in terms of like gender affirming care and disability justice in the field of mental health? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I can't actually speak much to disability justice and I'm going to be real honest with that. I don't have enough lived experience in that community. Um, I would rather see folks who are disabled being in positions where they can better influence Mm. those decisions and those conversations. Like that's realistically what needs to happen. Myself as a more or less able-bodied person doesn't need to be in that conversation. Um, as for gender affirming care, like (sighs) consistency, Uh, (laughs) consistency, I think that's really it. Um, I don't know. Like, I feel like that is a great question, uh, for Dr. DeVore, who is the chair of transgender studies over at UVic. Uh, he's a fabulous, fabulous resource who is doing a lot of great stuff on this. Um, I don't feel like it's very ironic, you know, being, being in psychology, being a a transgender person, I don't feel like I know what the best practice is for that yet. Mm -hmm. Like I'm very aware and I'm going to like acknowledge a bunch of critiques that just flew into my head. (laughs) Um, I'm very aware that the, um, why path standards of care are best practice, which is um, being as affirming with the gender identity as possible within the constraints that exist at the time. Um, having the person take the lead like i understand those standards of care Mm -hmm. um what i'm meaning is things like i think for me it boils down again to like training how do we improve the training of practitioners so if they're if they have someone showing up who is gender diverse that they don't start questioning them how do you know how are you sure yeah. that you're gender diverse. Because even if I think of myself, that happened with like three different therapists mm-hmm. <laughs> where it's like, no, I've known since I was like pretty young. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and even that story isn't the same for all gender diverse folks. Gender dysphoria doesn't happen for everybody. Mm -hmm. Like these are things that we need like just more education about. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess. And if I want to be specific, having more representation, teachers who are gender diverse, Mm -hmm. faculty who are gender diverse examples in school that are used that are gender diverse, like those kinds of things. Um, for me, gender affirming care is just an extension of those facets. Um, because, and also like addressing the terrible socialization norms that happen already would be great because that's also going to improve gender affirming care for everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, that's where it gets like really intersectional. Like there's so many different systems that can really influence this. Mm-hmm. So in the moment with a person, it's more about like, okay, what it is you're experiencing? How do we make this easier for you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Okay, so last question on the podcast. You know it's coming. It seems <laughs> yeah. tangential, but I feel like it's like always in the background. So um, given the world as it is, Oliver, how do you personally cope with grief and rage? A garden. <laughs> nice. um, it depends. It depends on what the grief and rage is about. Um, yeah, like... <sighs> Sometimes I sleep, sometimes I make TikToks, sometimes I garden, uh, sometimes I play with my cat. It really depends on what it is. Um, Sometimes I just get really, really frustrated and I don't know what to do with myself. So like, I find if, if I've been knee deep in academia and reading five textbooks and trying to write a paper, then gardening is the easier thing because I've been so cerebral for like so long that I need something physical to do. Um, but if I've been doing so much activity, then, then just getting to hide in my head works better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can't say there's a specific thing because it changes so much. Mm-hmm. If it's, if it's seeing another ridiculous bathroom bill or something, then that's <laughs> usually just going to be me being like, but if it's something like uh oh god i don't know a forest fire then that's probably just going to be like some tears and then going to tend to some plants so i can feel like i have some agency Mm. so Mm. and i think i guess that's probably the big piece there what can i do so i feel like i have agency right now Mm. yeah thanks for connecting those dots for us i like the 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 tending to the plants that that I, I resonate with that until I get out to my roses and then I'm like, oh, I'm so frustrated. It is a good distraction. It's like, here's a little place I can sort of try to play God and make you healthy. God damn it. Yeah. Yeah. And all the little things you can kind of nitpick at, right? Totally, totally. Weeding. It's so therapeutic. Yeah. I, I resonate with that. Well, thank you so much, Oliver. This is a great conversation that I, you know, I think I needed to grow five years up to, for us to be able to have, but I can see how our, yeah, I, I feel a real affinity and connection um, and just like interest in how you see the world and um, really appreciate your manner of approach and the way you express. And like I said, I, I trust my child with you as a member of my my village that's helping to raise him up. So um Thanks so much for agreeing to come on the show and share your perspective with the rest of the world. Yeah, well, and thanks so much for having me. I, I'm delighted to have been able to engage in this and like even 
the process of like coming up with all like the different notes and things like it's it's very delightful because a lot of these are pieces that I've wanted to talk about and address so it's nice to have the opportunity thank you awesome Oliver is going to provide some links to their source material, and once I get them, I'll add them to the show notes. I'll also add some accounts that I like following on Instagram for psychoeducation from actually autistic people and uh, folks living with ADHD and other things. Hey, five listeners in Hawaii. (laughs) Thanks for being here. I'm totally tickled to see your unique user downloads this week. You're awesome. Thanks for your support. I actually, I wish I could... Thank you by name. Hey, okay, everybody, if you're a listener who'd like to be acknowledged by name in my listener shout-out segment here, tag me in a post on Instagram. I'll totally do it. You can find me on Insta at, at Carmen Spaniola. Go to my website to find out how you can access nearly all of my current offerings for one low monthly membership in the Numinous Network. You'll find all the details at CarmenSpaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care. Take care.